Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. In person, we are at our building on Hill Road. Uh, We gather for worship through song and prayer. We teach and study the Bible. Uh, The same Bible study we're going to do right now, we'll be doing in person on Sunday mornings. We have Kids Church, and then Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. here at our building, we have youth group for middle and high school students. We also have small groups that meet throughout the week, and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We're going to continue our study looking at the book of Philippians, and we are starting chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible, or open your Bible app, or whatever you're doing, you can look at Philippians chapter 2. It is important to remember that the book of Philippians is actually a letter. We call it a book because we call all of the different things in the Bible books of the Bible, but it's actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians at the church in the city of Philippi. It's a letter. So it wasn't like they read chapter one and said, all right, we'll close this and then next week we'll look at chapter two. They read the whole letter. And chapter two is really a continuation of the themes at the end of chapter one. At the end of chapter one, Paul was talking about the suffering that he was going through as he was literally in chains because he believed in and publicly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, in Philippi, we don't know exactly what was going on, but Paul speaks at the end of chapter 1 of their suffering, what they were going through, the struggles and trials that they were having, how they were being treated as enemies by those who did not believe or accept the message of Jesus. And this continues on. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he's saying if you're a Christian, If you have any comfort from Jesus' love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being in one Spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking out for your own interest, but each one of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, having the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, which is a, it's a kind of a mouthful, but Paul is saying Jesus is God. He's not just the son of God. He's not just a prophet or an enlightened teacher. Jesus is very one in nature, God. God the Father is equally God as Jesus, God the Son, as the Holy Spirit is God. They are all equally God. One God who reveals himself in three distinct persons. But Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself 
nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So what Paul is saying is, even though Jesus is equally God as the Father is God, he humbled himself. Uh, elsewhere in the scripture, it talks about Jesus uh, being made a little lower than the angels. And so he, he lowered himself in station and ability and position, took on this human form because of that humility and that servant nature that he had and exhibited. And he submitted himself to the will of the Father, even to death, and not just any death, but the cross, which was public and horrific and humiliating and excruciating. And when he died on the cross, an innocent man dying a criminal's death, all of the sins of the world were placed on him. So he had spiritual agony as well. Verse 9 says, therefore, God, and when it says God here, you should remember what Paul is meaning is the Father. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there are two big ideas set up at the beginning of chapter two. The first is this. It only applies to true Christians. The first big idea set up in chapter two is that this only applies to true Christians. Verse one, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort in his love, if you have any common sharing in his spirit, if you are not an actual Christian, if you're just a spiritual person, a religious person, a quote-unquote moral person, if you're a church-going person or you go to synagogue or mosque or wherever, you, go, you do some sort of spiritual activity or endeavor in your life. This doesn't apply to you. What Paul is saying is only applicable to people who are saved, people who have had their, surrendered their lives and said, Jesus, save me. You are God. You are the Lord of my life. That common sharing with the Spirit as the Spirit of God enters into the, the heart, the soul of a, of a person who is surrendering their life to Jesus and baptizes us into Jesus' death and resurrection. He's saying, that only everything I'm saying applies to you. If this is what's happened to you, this is who I'm talking to. Why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Because what has happened over the years and over the centuries in churches is people have tried to apply this teaching, this conversation, these ideas to people who are not actual Christians. They might be nice people. They might be church-going people. They might even be baptized or confirmed or church members. But they're not actual Christians. I think that's important. There are people who are church adjacent. They're around. They're, they're interested in the things of faith. They like the community. Maybe they were born into a Christian family and they grew up with the traditions and the music and the forms of Christianity and they like it. But then what happens is we place expectations on people that they themselves have never claimed. And there are many people who feel not freedom and grace 
from their church experience, but shame and condemnation because the ways of Jesus were placed on their shoulders. And that's a load that no one can bear. The person who is in Christ can bear the load because we have the power of his spirit. The spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, empowers true Christians to live a life of holiness and victory like we talked about last week. So this is only applicable to true Christians. This is only applicable to people who are followers of Jesus. If that's not you, you're welcomed here. We're glad that you're here. But we don't want to lay a burden on you that you can't bear. Because I can't bear it. And no Christian can bear it. The only way that we bear the burdens of following Jesus are because we have the power of his spirit working in our lives. The second big idea is this. If we want to be like Jesus, and true Christians do want to be like Jesus. I was, I've told this story before, but I was in a group kind of class setting when I was in grad school and we were talking about discipleship. And after a while, one of my friends in the class made the point that I thought was so astute and insightful and important. And I felt like a lot of people in the class missed it. As we were having this sort of group discussion around the concept of discipleship, my friend pointed out and said, I think what you're talking about is mentorship. He said, True discipleship, if you look at what the word means and how it was lived out in the days of Jesus, you weren't just a fan of your master or your teacher or your rabbi. You actually like wanted to pattern your whole life after them. It was a bigger deal. And, and he said what, what people in the group were, in the class were sort of complaining about was that they hadn't had mentors in their life, spiritual mothers and fathers to short, sort of mentor them or encourage them. But that's different than being a disciple. You know, there are people I respect greatly, but I'm not a disciple of them. You know, I, there are church leaders, thinkers who I have great respect for. But I haven't changed how I dress or how I order my life or how I do my daily routine based on them. The disciples of Jesus changed their whole world to match his. No one should be a disciple of me. No one should be a disciple of any pastor. We can be discipled. We can learn how to follow Jesus from other Christians but I'm not going to change my way of life because of what some other person does in, in that that's who God made them to be. Let's say you're a night person. They're an early riser. And they say, well, I better be an early riser because that's what they do. Well, maybe not. Jesus was staying up late to pray all the time. You see that in the Gospels. But if we are disciples of Jesus, that means we want to be like him. We want to do what he did. We want to change our lives to conform to his ways. So the first big idea is that this only applies to people who are disciples of Jesus, true Christians. But the second big idea is that being like Jesus, that's being a disciple. That's what being holy or righteous looks like, is being made more like Jesus. Being like Jesus means being a servant. Jesus, like we just read, lowered himself humbly took the form of a servant. 
There was a story in the Gospels where the lowest role any servant could have in a household in Jesus' day was to wash the feet of the guests. You traveled on dusty roads, maybe roads covered with the droppings of horses and donkeys and pack ant, you know, uh, beasts of burden, dirt, filth, and sweat. And you would come in and before sitting down for a meal, a servant would come and wash the feet of the guests, wash away all of the dirt and crap and sweat. And they would take that low roll. Jesus gathered his 12 disciples and he took a bowl and a rag and he washed all of their feet. No master, no rabbi would wash the feet of their disciples, of their servants. But Jesus was showing them, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must learn to be the servant of all. If you're doing this because you think you will have authority or position, and some of them did. Some of them thought that by following Jesus, they would gain high authority and position. He said, no, you have to learn to humble yourself and be a servant. So these are the two big ideas. It only applies to Christians. And being like Jesus means being a servant. Here's the problem. This is the big problem when we talk about this kind of stuff. People. Churches are made up of people. And people bring their brokenness into the equation. You might say, Adam, doesn't Jesus heal our brokenness? Oh, yes. Yes, he does. But sometimes that's a long process. And people bring their brokenness into the equation. And emotionally unhealthy people, and spoiler alert, newsflash, there are a lot of Christians, even church leaders, who are emotionally unhealthy people. And they will live this out in an emotionally unhealthy way. That's, that's almost a given. It's almost a, a 100% certainty. If you're an emotionally unhealthy person, then you will read the Bible and apply it in, a, in the way that you know how, which is usually a broken or emotionally unhealthy way. So here's the problem we have. How do we live out these two big ideas in a way that's not emotionally unhealthy, in a way that's not dysfunctional, in a way that is not broken, in a way that is not just furthering cycles of brokenness, cycles of toxicity, cycles of hurt people hurt people? I think there's an answer. Jesus, in John chapter 6, People came to him and said, Jesus, we're going to make you king. You don't have a choice in this. You're going to do it. They said, we're going to make you king. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus' family thought he had gone crazy. He's going around teaching people. People are coming to listen to his teaching. He claims to be healing the sick, which he was. But, you know, they hear all these reports of what Jesus is doing, and they say, man, he's lost his mind. So they came to bring him home, and he said, I won't go with you. I'm not going back. I'm doing the will of my father. When the people in John chapter 6 wanted to make Jesus king, it says that Jesus removed himself from that place. This might shock some people, but Jesus set healthy boundaries, and he removed himself from toxic situations. Jesus is fully God. 
I want to stress that over and over and over again because I believe Philippians chapter 2, which we're studying today, stresses that Jesus was in the very nature fully divine. And yet, he was also fully human. And the fully human Jesus set emotionally healthy boundaries and removed himself from toxic situations. Just because... The big idea is that being like Jesus means that we are to be a servant of all, to think more about others' needs than our own. It doesn't mean that we have to live that out in emotionally unhealthy ways, in toxic ways, in dysfunctional ways. Being a servant of all does not mean that we allow somebody to be abusive to us. When I first came to Faith on Hill, there was somebody in the church well, there were a couple people. There's somebody in the church who was an emotionally unhealthy person. And I, I have great sympathy for them. It's, this is not me knocking them. I don't think most people in our church know them, to be honest, because just because of, you know, we're a different church than we were six, seven years ago. But I remember being in a situation where I witnessed them being abusive verbally to someone else. And I just said, no, that's not okay. That's not, that's not happening anymore. It's okay to say no and set boundaries and remove toxicity from situations. It's not more Christ-like to say, oh, that's just how they are. We need to put up with it. It was a moment to say, this is not okay. Jesus removed himself from toxic situation. Jesus set healthy boundaries, and we are free to do the same. I want to say this clearly. If someone is in an abusive situation, it is not more spiritual for them to stay. I have known of wives and mothers who have stayed with abusive husbands and fathers because they have thought, well, a wife has to submit to their husband. It's in the Bible. It is not biblical or Christ-like for your husband to beat you physically. That's not what wives submit to your husbands in Ephesians 5 means. It is not biblical or Christ-like to allow a spouse, a partner to be abusive to your children. You are free and encouraged and I plead with you, get yourself to safety. Get your kids to safety. If you are in an abusive situation, run. Jesus removed himself from toxic situations. Feel the same freedom. And if you need help, reach out. If you suspect something, check in. We have too much abuse and neglect and trauma in our culture right now. It's always been there, but it is all the more. It is is increasing. Some things have always been there and we're just more aware of them. I believe that the trauma and abuse in our culture has always been there and we are more aware of them. And at the same time, I also believe that it is increasing for various reasons. So the first biblical answer to this problem of how do we live out being a servant of all in a biblical way is to know that biblically, Jesus set healthy boundaries and removed himself from toxic situations. In John chapter 19, this is well known. Jesus was flogged. He was whipped. He was tortured. On his way to the cross, he was beaten and abused for your sake and for my sake. But in Acts chapter 22, the same Paul who's writing the book of Philippians, 
was about to be flogged. And flogging wasn't just whips, right? Like I just, uh, last night, I was at a big movie night that some friends of ours put on and we saw the, the most recent Indiana Jones movie. And Indiana Jones famously has a bullwhip. It's not just being whipped by a bullwhip. But the ends of the whips, there were like these little tassels and that they would tie pieces of stone and glass and bone into the tassels. And so it would not just cut your back open, but it would tear chunks of flesh away from your back. Even if you survived, you never were fully recovered from a flogging. And Paul who's telling us to be like Jesus and humble ourselves and, and, and think of others, he didn't take the flogging. He was about to be flogged. And he said to the captain of the guards, hey, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? Paul was a Roman citizen. And he said, hey, is it lawful for you to do this? And the guards were like, oh, it is not lawful. In fact, we could get in massive trouble ourselves if anyone found out that we were about to flog a Roman citizen. Paul said, hey, I'm, I'm good. I don't need this in my life right now. You don't have to just go, well, I'm a Christian. I'm called to suffer. Not always. At least not always. Paul was writing the book of Philippians from some imprisonment. We've talked about this. We don't know where he is, but he describes his situation as being in chains. Multiple times Paul was in chains. Multiple times in the book of Acts it tells us how Paul's life was threatened or he was beaten. We don't know exactly what the suffering that Paul refers to for the Christians living in the city of Philippi. But it's not unreasonable to think that there was physical violence against them. We know worldwide this is happening. We saw just weeks ago Christians in Pakistan be attacked. We know that Christians all over the world face persecution. Christians in India, Christians in China, Christians in North Korea, Christians in Russia face persecution. I know of Christians in our community who have not received physical violence, but they have what I would deem as actual persecution because of their faith. And it's not the people who talk about it, by the way. But even though Jesus was flogged, Paul didn't feel like it was necessary. Even though he says, you know, we've, he says back in chapter one, we've been granted not just to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his name. And yet at the same time, Paul was the same guy who said, I'm good. I don't need that right now. There's this thing called the Didashi. And the Didashi is a, a writing um, that was put together by the early church fathers in the generation after the apostles. So, you know, Peter, James, John, the twelve disciples, Paul, Barnabas, the, these apostles that we read about in the New Testament. The generation after them, this, this, the writing, the Didashi was put together. And it was sort of a manual for churches. Uh, how do we do this or deal with that? And one of the things that it deals with is these traveling apostles and prophets. Just like Paul and Peter and John and others would travel from place to place as sort of itinerant preachers and evangelists, after they were gone, there were others who said, hey, you know what? I think God's called me to this. And they would travel preaching. And some of them were legit brothers and sisters who were just preaching the gospel, encouraging churches. God had given them that role. Others were con artists. And they were trying to make a living off the back of well-meaning Christians. And so they, they came up with this sort of guideline. And they said, hey, if an apostle comes to you, let him be received as if it was Jesus. But 
let him not stay more than one day, or if needs be, a second as well. Meaning, hey, you know what? Somebody comes as a traveling preacher and they say, I need a room for the night. Can you do that? Yeah, house them, feed them, but don't let them stay longer than a day. And if like, let's say it's just dumping rain outside, hey, let them stay two nights. But if they want to stay a third day, that person's a false prophet. And what the Dadashi is saying is, Hey, somebody's going to come along. This is, a, this is a rule that we will put in place to safeguard churches so that churches would be protected, Christians would be protected from con artists, from sheeps and wolves clothing, or sorry, that's the other way around. Strike that, reverse it, wolves in sheep's clothing. The idea with this rule was to set healthy boundaries so that people would be protected. What I'm saying is that biblically and in church tradition, there are healthy rules, boundaries set up so that people could be protected. Does that mean that we will never suffer for Jesus? Far from it. All of the apostles suffered for Jesus. Most of them died for Jesus. Paul was in chains because of the gospel. There are Christians in our day who are passed over for promotion not necessarily because they proclaim their faith. Maybe, I know of some Christians that have been passed over for promotion because they felt called to serve God. Um, and so, you know what? I won't work on Sundays because I'm going to be with my church family worshiping Jesus. I'm sorry, I'm not going to sacrifice my family because I see them as God's trusted me with my, with my spouse, with my children. And I'm not going to burn myself out selling myself to the company or the corporation and sacrificing my children at the altar of my career. And so they get passed over. These are consequences of following Jesus in our world. I do think there are people who are, who are treated poorly at work because of it. In fact, I guarantee it for confidentiality reasons. I won't talk about it publicly, but I know of circumstances in our community where this has happened. The problem is the waters get muddy and confused because there are plenty of people who get on social media, videos, blogs, podcasts, viral memes, whatever, and they will tell you how they or the church are being persecuted in our day when they are really not. Inconvenienced, maybe, but persecuted for Jesus? No. Now, they might be experiencing some pushback for their political opinions, but are they being persecuted for the faith? That's two different things. What I'm saying is this. The big idea from the, this part of Philippians is that we, as Christians, because remember, this only applies to people who are true Christians. And you're like, am I a true Christian? Go back and read the beginning of chapter 2. Are you, are you united with Christ? Do you find comfort in his love? Do you have the common sharing of the Holy Spirit working in your life? Those are valid questions. But for true Christians, the big idea is that being like Jesus, being like our master, is being a servant of others and putting others first. The problem is how do we do this in an emotionally healthy and sustainable way instead of doing it in a broken or unhealthy or toxic way and, and not allowing others to inflict 
uh, systems of control or abuse on us in the name of being a servant of all. As I've said, I believe biblically and in church tradition, we see examples of Jesus, of the apostles, the church fathers, setting emotionally sustainable and safe boundaries. We should do these things so that people are safe, so that people are healthy, so that ministry and serving Jesus is sustainable. We recognize that true Christians, there's a consequence, there's a cost for following Jesus. All of the apostles suffered. The Christians here in Philippi, something is going on for their faith. There are costs to following Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we have to live out our faith and walk in the ways of Jesus in ways that are not sustainable, in ways that are toxic, in ways that are dysfunctional, in ways that are abusive. Remember this. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? This is speaking about the end. This is speaking about the judgment. This is speaking about what we talked about when we studied the book of the Revelation last, uh, last spring and winter. There will come a time where Jesus is victorious and no one can deny that he is Lord. But in the meantime, this world is still rebelling and is still fighting back. And we bring a message of hope and life chains and of grace and of forgiveness. All of that is true. But that message involves rejecting this world of sin and turning our lives towards God. The Bible says that Light has come into this world, but people love the darkness because our deeds are evil. We, we don't like the message of Jesus. People don't. This world doesn't. I have to change my ways. I have to do something different, not because that's what saves me, but that's the natural response. That's the natural response to following Jesus. He says, You know, the Apostle Paul says, hey, if this stuff has happened to you, if Jesus has been made real in your life, if the Spirit of God is working in your world, then do nothing out of selfish ambition. Actually be humble. Serve the interest of others. That's totally opposite of the world around us. You mean my wants, my needs, my desires might not be the highest goal? Yeah. You mean what I want and and my vision for the world might not be the best thing for me? Very possible. And the world fights it and rejects it. The world fights back in the same way that sometimes our human bodies fight back against medicines that are meant to cure us, but our bodies fight against them. Someone needs a heart transplant, a liver transplant, a kidney transplant. Somebody needs new lungs. They actually have to give us medicines so that our bodies don't reject this life-saving transplant. Jesus has transplanted his life into ours. He has taken our sins and our rebellion, and he has transplanted his righteousness into our lives, but the world wants to reject it. How do we live out this calling to be a servant of all? Know that we can do so in 
a healthy way. We can still set healthy boundaries. We can work through these things together as a church family so that people are still safe while seeking to serve others. People are living lives that are sustainable and won't burn themselves out in a way that still sees others' needs as higher than our own. And again, if you're saying, okay, the first big premise is that I have to be a Christian for this to all apply. And I don't know if I'm a Christian. Read verse one and, and say, has this happened? Am I united with Christ? And then if all of that is true, then being like Jesus means being a servant of others. And how that works in our world is something that we process together. We process together as we study God's word together on Sunday mornings. We process together as we gather in community and family in the small groups throughout the week. We process it together as we live this life in the way of Jesus and saying, okay, how do we do this? How do we figure this out? How do we work through it? And by God's grace, through the power of his Holy Spirit, we see people made more like Jesus all around us and all the time. And that same life change is equally for you as it is for the person that is sitting next to you or the person that you think is beyond hope. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is still raising people from the dead this very day. We just have to cry out to him. Non-Christians cry out to him for forgiveness. Believers cry out and ask God to fill us with his spirit so that we can have the power to live like Jesus in a way that is healthy. If you have any questions, you want to just reach out, you want to connect, there's so many ways to do that. You can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. You can search Faith on Hill on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts to keep connected with our content. You can email us, office at faithonhill.com for general stuff or small groups at faithonhill.com if you want to know how to connect in small groups. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor here. I'd love to see you sometime on a Sunday morning. And feel free to reach out whenever. God bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you as, next time as we continue to study God's Word together. 